I invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of 2 Kings. Uh, it's about maybe a, a fourth of the way through your Bible there. It's in the Old Testament, some Old Testament history. For some of you, you're like, yay, history. And others of you are like, oh, history. Well, it's our history as well, so we're going to keep on preaching through 2 Kings, and it's fairly interesting here. Today, we're going to see that when all seems lost, when all hope seems lost, that salvation is accomplished by God in quite unexpected ways. And then the good news is declared by the least likely of all people. And this is how God has been working redemption throughout all of history. He uses unlikely people and unlikely ways to redeem His people and to renew the world. So with that in mind, we ought to have great confidence as we serve our King, Jesus Christ, as today we look to the life of Elisha. Will you join me with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us your word, which is living and active. And I pray now that you would open our ears, open our eyes to behold Christ more clearly through your word, soften our hearts that we might be conformed more into his glorious image from one degree of glory to the next. It's in the name of Christ we pray all of these things. Amen. So far uh, in the book of 2 Kings, we're witnessing God doing some things. He is building up a remnant church, those who remain faithful in a land that is primarily unfaithful. We're witnessing God bring His salvation, which is given through His prophet, His word, Elisha. That's happening while the kings and the rulers of the day remain impotent to save. And we see that time and again, the victory is won by God, but the victory is won not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit. As we enter chapters 6 and 7 of 2 Kings, the country of Syria takes center stage. They're to Israel's north and east, and this country has been raiding Israel, the northern kingdom. They've been plundering the people of God. They've been threatening to defeat and wipe out God's people. And while this is happening, king and commander of Israel remain impotent. They cannot even protect their own people. If we were to go back to chapter 6, just one chapter back from where we're at today, we would see that God defeated the Syrian army miraculously. What God did was He opened the eyes of His faithful servants to see that there are powers and principalities, horses and chariots that God is bringing to demolish the enemies. And while He opens the eyes of His servants, He blinds the eyes of His enemies. And Elisha takes center stage there, and what he does is he escorts the Syrian army to the Jordan River, and he sets before them, in their blindness, a meal. He feeds them, frees them, and sends them on their way. What an unexpected victory. Peace reigns without a sword being drawn. But Syria now is under the command of Ben-Hadad. He reminds us of Pharaoh a little bit because he forgot that God was merciful and didn't wipe out his army. What Ben-Hadad does is he goes to the capital city of Samaria and he sets siege to it. And God's people are ripe for picking here because, as we'll see, there's been a famine going on for quite a while. They're militarily poor, economically weak, and a siege is coming. Chapter 6, verse 24, gives us a glimpse at what that siege warfare is like. 
Verse 24 of chapter 6. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army, went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cob of dove's dung was for five shekels of silver. And that is a tongue twister. Maybe over lunch you can try and say that five times fast. Not right now, though. But what we have here, we have just a glimpse of the horrors of siege warfare where an army surrounds a walled-in fortress city. All of the the fields around them are now under their control. No more food is going into this city. All they have to live on is what is in the city at the time of the siege. Now, if you want to find more horrors of that, you can read the book of Lamentations, which records the, the siege of Jerusalem. It bleeds unimaginable sorrow in full color. So the the, the king at this time, he weeps and he seeks God's prophet because he blames God and his prophet for this famine and this siege. He doesn't want help from God's prophet. He wants the head of God's prophet. It's horrible. Mothers are reduced in Samaria to eating their own children. A donkey's head. I'm not familiar with what the going rate of a donkey's head would be. There's not a lot of meat on it, and it was an unclean animal, but at this time, it cost a fortune, and I don't know if dove's dung was used for fuel or food, but it cost a fortune as well. Weeks, months drag on as the walled city becomes a wasteland of death and destruction, no food, no water, no way out, but God's word speaks and promises salvation in unexpected ways. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. In the midst of this famine, in the midst of all the events I just mentioned, chapter 7, verse 1. But, but Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, Elisha says, but you shall not eat of it. God has done some great things in the ministry of Elisha, but surely the prophet's finally cracked, isn't he? Deliverance when we're eating donkey heads and dove's dung, food in abundance and on the cheap by tomorrow? When the king's right-hand man speaks what others are surely thinking, there's no way this is going to happen by tomorrow. Elisha responds in some ways saying something like, Doubter, you will see what the word, is, what the word of God has said, but you will not eat of it yourself. But there's a place, a, a curse placed upon the head of this captain of the king's army. Now, there's a theme that goes throughout First and Second Kings, and it's this. Attach yourself to the prophet of God. Heed his word, and you will know salvation. Kings and priests are rebellious, and they are impotent to save. The word of God is the only means, the only way of salvation. The captain rejects Elisha, the word of God, and the captain is cursed. Spoiler alert here, as this curse is just given to the, the captain... Spoiler is this, at the end of the chapter, it comes true. 
the prophecy bookends this section of the siege of Samaria. Look at verse 16 of our chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 16 reads this. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of flour, a fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of, of a barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And so he goes on to say that, that what the prophet had said comes true. Now, our eyes tire from repetition, right? If you watch any of PBS programs with your children, the repetition will drive you batty. And often in the Bible, it uses repetition time and again, time and again, time and again. Should I say it one more time? Time and again. But when it repeats something like that, that's important. And so if the, if the prophecy is, is, is repeated verbatim at the end of this chapter, what began it now ends it, it's kind of important. And what's the whole point of it? The Word of God speaks. The Word of God is true. Hold fast to the Word or cast yourself under judgment. Believing in His Word. Israel's king sought to silence God's Word, His prophets. Their priests sought to rewrite His law, to scratch their itching ears. We are warned along with them. We are exhorted to hear and to heed God's Word. Chapter 7, back in verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 3 reads, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit there, here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. That's the siege. Francis Schaeffer is a pastor from years gone by, and one of his favorite themes was this. He said, there are no little people, and there are no little places. There's no little people, no little places. God uses little people, little places for his great work. And we have here what most people would think are four little, insignificant people. There are four lepers who take center stage as world powers collide in Syria. And the unlikeliest of heroes for sure, four lepers? Are you kidding me? Where, did, where were they at? They were outside the city gate, weren't they? They weren't allowed in the city, the only place of refuge in the land. These four are caught between the hammer of Syrian might and the anvil of walled Samaria. So they reason together that death is imminent, either from starvation or because they're rejected by their own people, or else they go over to the Syrians and what? If they die, they, they die by the sword of the Syrians there. Either way, the death sentence is cast upon them, so they throw themselves at the mercy in the belly of the beast. Make note of this as well. Last week, we, we, or yeah, last week we, we, we heard and taught about uh, Naaman, a Syrian commander, right? And he had leprosy. Remember that? And he was a Syrian, a Gentile, who was then coming to Israel, the land, and he was healed. So what strikes us, as soon as we hear there are four lepers near the capital of Samaria, it reminds us what? God is healing the nations while the people in the land continue to be leprous. There's a sickness. There's a disease in the land. 
lack of repentance, judgment is coming. Jesus makes the point very clearly when He preaches a very short sermon in Luke 4. He points to the fact that there is a number of lepers in Israel while God was healing the nations. It's a warning to not go the way of the kings of Israel. And the reality is God works His salvation in in ways that we might not expect. So look here with me at chapter 7, verse 5. So they, the, the lepers, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the, the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites, kings of the Egyptians, to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight. They abandoned tents, their horses and donkeys, leaving the camp as it was as they fled for their lives. It's twilight. Remember the creation story? There was evening, there was morning, first day. There was evening, there was morning, second day. Twilight, evening time, that's the start of a new day. There's something going to happen. Something is about to go down. And we've heard this uh, image of the horses and chariots of Israel, haven't we? Remember when Elijah was taken up? What do they see? That the fiery, uh, the horses and chariots of Israel are taking him up. And then if we were to read chapter 6, we would see also that the the horses and chariots are seen by God's faithful remnant. They can see the powers and principalities that God uses to accomplish His purposes. And He defeated the armies of, of Syria then. Now, these same horses and chariots show up once again, but it's just audible for the enemies of God. What did the king of Israel do to accomplish salvation? What did any of the Israelites do to accomplish salvation? They did not lift a finger, but at God's mighty word, the power of his horses and chariots, the enemies flee. It's bizarre. It's absurd. What an absurd victory. And all is accomplished by God's horse and chariot. Israel doesn't lift a finger. God's deliverance in unexpected means. Deliverance is upon them, whether Israel knows it or not. And who should be the first to enjoy the spoils of God's victory? Who is it? The unclean, the poor, the outcast, the four lepers enter the camp and they plunder. That describes well God's act of salvation throughout all of history, whether it be individuals, families, who are becoming the community of God's salvation through God's miraculous grace. Now, maybe God doesn't always conquer armies in this way, but in His power of His horses and chariots, what does He do? He slays the proud. He confounds the wise. He softens hard hearts. He crushes idols. He opens blind eyes. He brings death to life. The gospel is all about God's great reversal As the Scriptures tell us, God made Him who was Christ. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. All of the Beatitudes that were just read for us, that's the great reversal, isn't it? The poor in spirit inherit the kingdom. The reality of God's grace humbles us, and it ought to leave us looking always to His hand to protect and to provide. It also gives hope. It creates a people optimistic about the future, regardless of the season and circumstance. And many of us have lived in fewer times more despairing than the current climate. 
and yet we have reason because of Scripture and Christ's finished work to move forward in hope. Verse 8. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent, ate and drank. They carried off silver and gold and clothing and went back and hid them. And they came back, entered another tent, carried off things from it and went in and hid them. This is, a, a, a two, you know, there's four kids that, that, that find a candy store completely unoccupied. No parents around. And they go in and start grabbing stuff. Pockets are full. They go back and hide them in their places. This is what's going on here. You might call this section the plundering of the Egyptians. There is a faithful remnant still in the land, a remnant church centered on God's grace that has been declared to the prophet Elisha. And this remnant is comprised of some unlikely people, like four lepers, like you and me. His remnant church is known suffering. He knows isolation. Church knows threat. But God sustains them. And here we see that He restores them as well. Indeed, God's anger may tarry for the night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. Again, back to Nahum, and he brought a bunch of gifts to the prophet Elisha, but Elisha didn't take any one of them, did he? It's a similar thing, though, but like the, the, the Egyptians are bringing the riches, showering the riches on Israel as they depart, as they are exiting the land of Egypt. God's faithful remnant, not only the four here, but God's faithful remnant, receive the wealth of the nations, as do the rest of Samaria, verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. The plundering continues. The plundering of the Syrians continues. But before lepers come and tell the rest of the Samaria and the, Syri- of the, the Israelites there, their conscience is struck by their behavior, verse 9. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. By the way, the the good news, that's the word gospel that you read throughout the New Testament. So they're coming to preach the gospel to Samaria. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. Let us go and preach the gospel of salvation. Jesus healed ten lepers at one time. Do you remember that story? Nine of them just left and lived life without regard to Christ, but one returned to give thanks. Our lepers begin as the nine in some ways, don't they? But they amend their ways, and they come back to Jesus to give thanks, a gratitude for His healing and saving work. In some ways, we're reminded again of that story with Naaman. After Elisha rejected all of the gifts and, and Naaman starts going back to Syria. Remember Elisha's servant Gehazi? He goes and he takes the wealth and he keeps it for himself. And here we have a contrast of four outcasts and isolated people who do not keep the goods for themselves. But rather, they go and they preach. They declare the good news, the gospel, that God is victorious and our salvation is at hand. But not all who hear the good news respond in humility and trust, do they? Look at verse 12. The king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp and 
to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get in, into the city. And one, uh, then one of the servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, see that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us ascend and see. And then verse 15 says, they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments, equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. Messengers returned and told the king. And you can kind of understand the king's position, can't you? Uh, why should the king believe the story of these four lepers? I mean, why would a large army at the cusp of victory just up and leave? The king rejects the gospel. He fails to heed the word of God's prophet. And the prophet, of course, was here in the form of four lepers. The king is still blaming God, still desires the head of Elisha. He seems to forget pretty quickly that God's miraculous deliverance has fallen upon them time and again, not even one full chapter back from where we're at. There are spiritual forces in the heavenly realms defeating the enemies of God. God's horses and chariots of fire are working salvation apart from the deeds or devotion of any king. The king must see with his own eyes before he believes. He must touch the wound on the side. He must place his fingers on the scars of the hands. If only he would believe the word of God and attach himself to God's prophet who is the way of salvation, the truth, and the life. Verse 16 recounts again, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of God. Elisha is vindicated once again. His word, his prophecy comes true. Cheap food is found in abundance in the city of despair. The king and his men, however, still remain under the wrath of God. Look at verse 17. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. That's where the lepers were at too, right? And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God said when the king came down to him. Verse 20, and so it happened to him for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. What happened to this guy, I wonder? He got trampled in the gate and he died just as the word of God declared. Those who reject God's word and his prophet remain under the curse. But for the remnant church, the faithful who attach themselves to his word and prophet, the faithful, the remnant are preserved. No matter the circumstance or season, the faithful are preserved. The remnant church is then restored while the unfaithful are condemned. The captain and the king, they illustrate for all of Israel throughout their history, for us today, what it is for a people to seek to silence God's word. What it is for a people who trust in horses and chariots of man rather than looking to God for their deliverance. The lepers image forth God's generosity and His grace. The God who receives the outcast, who tends to the needs of the poor and the needy and brings them into His presence. And this story here, this siege of Samaria, becomes for, uh, in some ways becomes for us a microcosm of the reality of the world in which we delight to inhabit, that there are cosmic forces at hand. 
that the Lord is fighting our battles for us according to His means and His ways, which our eyes and our minds cannot always see nor even comprehend. The power of God, the power of God will ever prevail. Because God has entered our story. He has entered the story of the world by taking on flesh. He has become, in some ways, a new Elisha in the form of Jesus Christ. For He too healed outcasts and the unclean. He too commissioned these same to proclaim the good news of God's deliverance to all nations. And this deliverance was not through the defeat of man's weapons of war, nor by defeating their wrathful opposition, but it was accomplished on a cross. Absurd. Unheard of. Jesus' death destroys death itself. Jesus' death defeats the devil. Jesus' death brings light to darkness and despair. So that even when all seems dark, when despair promises us comfort, when hope slinks away, we continue to look to our captain and our king, who is Jesus Christ. For we have a king and a captain who leads us in triumphal procession. We, like those lepers, have been brought from death to life. We have been accepted by God. We have been cleansed in the blood of Jesus. And we too have good news of great joy, the deliverance of the nations. And like the lepers, we cannot keep His blessings and goodness for ourselves. We must declare this to others. Our deliverer is come, and He is restoring all things. The message is simple. Look to Him and find rest. Look to Him and find rest. It strikes me that one of the best things we can give our children in the upcoming generations is this, a hopeful, optimistic view of God's future. Now, it doesn't deny the realities of living in a fallen world. We don't merely smile as if all is well at this time, but we hold forward to them hope that God is indeed restoring all things. Why? Because that's what His Word says. That God is reconciling all things, all things to Himself through Jesus Christ. He also says this in His Word, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the surpassing glory that awaits us in Jesus Christ. And He promises this in His Word, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. So people in the darkness and the despair, I just encourage you to look to your Savior, your King, who is Jesus Christ. Though circumstance and season can look quite grim, we trust still, and we walk with eyes fixed upon Christ, walking shoulder to shoulder as the body of Christ as the community of God's salvation, because God delivers us. He will preserve us, and one day He will restore us finally and fully in the image of His glorious and dear Son, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Your Word, and we ask Your blessing upon it now in the hearing and the receiving of Your Word, that we might be conformed into the image of Your dear Son, and depart in your peace to declare your good news to all the world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.